Good morning. It's uh, good to be here with you this Sunday. It's the second time back here for me at Grace Hamptons or Grace Prez, and uh, it's just a joy to be able to worship with you and to be able to fill in for Mark while he's away. So today we're going to be reading from Psalm 1. So if you have your Bibles or your phone app, you can go ahead and open that and turn to it. Um, and we're going to read and just hear from uh, the Word of God ourselves. So again, that's Psalm 1. This is the Word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You know, the Psalms for centuries, for 2,000 years at least and longer, going back to the Jewish state, have been a source of great encouragement and joy for, for the people of faith. And I think the reason for that is that the Psalms resonate with us what it means to, at our core, to be human. They remind us, in the Psalms, we're reminded of the majesty and the beauty of God, while also showing us the depravity of our own hearts and the evils of the world around us. The Psalms, I want you to keep this in mind, that the Psalms were written to the covenant people of God, and they were generally read out loud as part of public worship, particularly for the nation of Israel. It was, in essence, like their hymn book. It's important to keep that in mind that this book, these books, this one book, these 150 Psalms, were written to the people of God, to people of faith. So when we read it, it's for people of faith. That is, for us as Christians, for people already united to Christ in faith. And so it's important as we go through this today that you remember that, that this is a book written to people already following after God, following after his commands, following after his righteousness. You know, many scholars today consider Psalms 1 and 2 to be an introduction and the gateway to the whole book of Psalms. The reason for this is that uh, in many of our old manuscripts, particularly for the Middle Ages, which are some of our oldest manuscripts, we have show, um, we have, they show that Psalm 1 and 2 aren't, aren't labeled as 1 and 2. They're just attached to the front of the Psalms like an introduction, which has led many scholars to think of them as an they are an introduction to the entire book of Psalms. So Psalm 1 lays out for us how we're to approach and read the Psalms as a whole. It's a reminder that true worshipers of God must follow his path as laid out in the scriptures. You know, recently my son and I, uh, my son was home from college, um, and in May we decided that we were going to go hiking and camping up in the Adirondacks. Now, I'd never been to the Adirondacks, upstate New York, but I love to camp, and I love to um, do what we call backcountry backpacking, which is simply just um, going out into the wilderness and bringing whatever you need for three to five days on your back. So you have your own tent, your sleeping bag, your food, and so forth. And my son and I, we love to do this. And for the first time, we went into the eastern highlands of the Adirondacks. And we're just amazed by the beauty of God's creation, um, by the lakes, the mountains, the beautiful weather. And the most amazing aspect of our time out there was, again, this was in May, is that we never saw anyone. We saw, I think it was three people the entire three days that we were in the backcountry 
I mean, one of them was a ranger, a person who works in the park. Um, and it was just amazing. And it was a glorious time. One of the things that you have to keep in mind when you're hiking, and maybe the most um, extremely important thing to remember, is that you have to have the right resources with you in order to have a successful hike. And one of the most important tools to have with you for a successful hike is, of course, a map. All right? You must have a map. Um, you want to get lost quickly? Don't bring a map. Uh, or don't bring your phone. Because when you're in the backcountry and you're off the grid a little bit, you don't have access to, your phone won't connect with anything. Um, so you have to have a map because you're, the trails that you're on are often intersecting and crisscrossing each other. Now the Adirondacks are really nice because they're, they're labeled pretty nicely, but not, not every trail. So it's very easy to be on the trail and not have the right map and get mixed up where you're going to go. And you end up going down the wrong path. You take the wrong trail, takes you three, maybe four hours before you realize, oh my goodness, I'm on the wrong trail. And then what do you have to do? You have to turn around and hike back three to four hours to the right path again and pick up from there. Generally, there's no problem when that happens. However, when you're in the wilderness and you're back there for three, four, five days, if you take the wrong path, there's a potential right, for that being pretty dangerous. It depends on the, the amount of resources, the amount of supplies you have with you. But if you spent four days or four hours going down the wrong path, you might have to spend an extra night out in the wilderness. And do you have enough food? Do you have the supplies that you need to survive? So it's important. It's extremely important. And you quickly learn whether you're day hiking or backpacking overnight that you must have a map if you're going to thrive and feel successful and feel confident when you're backpacking in the wilderness. <clears throat> In a similar vein, Psalm 1 begins with this understanding that we're all on a life path, that we're all on a path together. And according to the psalmist, we're either on the path that leads to abundant, fruitful life or the path that leads to destruction and death. The psalmist begins by contrasting these two paths of life with two people, right? The righteous and the wicked. So with that, and then he's going to end the psalm by contrasting the outcome of these two people and these two paths. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and dive into Psalm 1 while I get a quick drink here. So this psalm begins, as you see in verse 1, begins with the word blessed, which is basically an exhortation to right action. And it's better translated as happy or joyful. I don't know about you, but when I read blessed, I'm thinking, blessed, I'm blessed, what's going on? But the, the actual Hebrew word means happy, joyful, um, and it's an exhortation to this right action. And if you read your more common, uh, the more not literal translations of the Bible, you'll see this word is often used, is often translated as happy or joyful. Um, this Hebrew word for blessed can express deep emotion so that it actually could be translated as, oh, the happiness of the one who does not do these things and who del whose delight is in the law. It's, it expresses a deep emotion. Um, on the part of the person who is following hard after God. And this happiness is important to note also that this happiness transcends our circumstances as we walk on the path that God has laid out for us. Blessed in this context, like the Beatitudes of Matthew 5, is a description of the covenant community, the people of God. Or more particularly, we could say it's a description of a person committed in faith to God and following God's path or God's plan. The psalm begins by exhorting the covenant community of God to right actions that will keep them on God's path. He does this, the psalmist does this, in a rather unique 
way, um, and I think it may be the only psalm that does this, and that he starts out not by the, pos- the positive things you need to do, but by the negative things you don't need to do. He describes the path of the, of the unrighteous person in verse 1 by using, th- by using uh, three, or in our English version, we use three English um, verbs to describe the, pers- the, the path of the unrighteous person, right? We're told, walk, stand, and sit are used to describe the path of the wicked person. Walk, stand, and sit. And these three words seem to imply a slippery slope idea of sin. You get the idea here that the author is saying, first, the idea is first is one, mere, one is merely walking alongside the wicked while seeking counsel. Then one stops and sort of hanging out with sinners and receives their advice. And then lastly, there's this idea that then eventually one is sitting among the mockers and adopting their views and lifestyle. So there's this progression of sin. You know, a few years ago, I read uh, John Bunyan's classic work, The Pilgrim's Progress, which is an allegory of a journey that Christian, the main character, his name is Christian, the main character, takes as he departs from the city of destruction to the celestial city. He's reminded throughout the book, throughout this allegory, to stay on the right path. And he can see the path because there's a light ahead. And he's to stay where he can see this light to stay on the right path. While on his journey, Christian encounters all kinds of obstacles, people, and places that attempt to lead him astray. He sometimes gets distracted by these people and places and loses sight of the path um, and has to be brought back with help from someone else, usually evangelists or someone else in the story will help him get back on the right path. He, in the story, we're told he's traveled through such uniquely named places as the village of morality, which you can guess that was. It's a moral place, but really no belief in God. It's just live a moral life. Um, through, it goes on to the city of Vanity Fair, which is a representative of sin and sinful people living in opposition to God. These and many other uniquely named places that only John Bunyan could come up with correspond to the various life struggles while on the path to the celestial city. Christian also encounters colorful characters on his journey, such as worldly wise man, who urges him to lead a practical, happy existence without God or religion. Or ignorance, who's a teenager who believes that living a good life is sufficient to prove one's religious faith. Or simply a man named Demas who tries to tempt Christian to leave the path with money. But in each case, Christian rejects their advice and counsel and stays on the path that was laid out for him. He might veer off it a little bit, but he's brought back. He might veer off a little bit, but he always comes back. Like Christian, we're all on a journey. And we will either, and we will encounter many obstacles and many people on this path who want to lead us astray. Many of these obstacles are simply teachings and worldviews that our friends, family, and culture are advocating as past the peace, uh, as past the success or fulfillment. You know, you've heard many of these views before. Um, I live in New York City. Um, one of the great sort of embeds everything about the city is education equals success. If you get the right education, you're going to be successful. That's, that's not true. <laughs> Just so you know, I think everybody knows that, but that's not true. Um, money means happiness or security. One needs to be willing to compromise your values or your principles to get ahead. It's okay to lie a little bit, maybe steal a little bit, embezzle a little bit here. It's, that's okay if that's going to get you ahead. That is sort of some of the, the worldview and values that are out there um, that are 
trying to lead us astray from the path as, as a Christian that the path God has called us to. And here's the thing. Like Christian in the allegory, we are to reject the advice and counsel of anything that would lead us astray on the path of life. The psalmist continues in verse 1 by listing three categories of people that the righteous person is not to associate with. These are wicked, sinners, and scoffers or mockers, depending on your Bible translation. And just like the verbs, these words show a progression of movement into further sin and disobedience. The wicked are those, in essence, who have committed a crime. That is, the idea behind the Hebrew word for wicked is somebody who's committed one crime, whereas a sinner is someone who's in a life uh, of crime. And uh, these two words for sinner and wicked are sin often as used as synonyms in the Psalms. And so as we go through the Psalm, you come to verse 5, uh, you'll only see two of these descriptions of the person used again, most likely because, again, uh, wicked and sinners are used interchangeably as synonyms throughout the Psalms. Lastly, we're told mockers are those who are directly opposed to the righteous and belittle God in his ways. The idea pictured here again is this progression of being thoroughly conformed to the attitudes, lifestyle, and worldview of the unrighteous. It's moving down this path of being thoroughly conformed to the wicked, to sinners. And the thing is, with this psalm, it's the psalm is sort of implying is that this doesn't just happen. Rather, one actively chooses to go down this path, right? Usually it's done incrementally, step by step, making choices that move us away from God in his word toward unrighteousness, toward unfaithfulness. There's a sense that the psalmist is saying that the righteous should separate out from the wicked, that is not even associate with them. Now, many faith communities take this perspective, whether Islamic communities or Orthodox Jewish communities, or even some Christian communities, many discourage associating with those of different faiths and different worldviews. They encourage their groups to remain separate from others who might influence them negatively. It's interesting to note that this was the charge the Pharisees brought against Jesus. Right in Matthew 9:11. The Pharisees accuse Jesus and condemn him for hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, hanging out with wicked people and sinners. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 15.33. He says, bad company ruins good morals. Or as the NIV states it, bad company corrupts good character. You know, I think we all know this to be true to some degree. And if we've lived long enough, we can most likely give examples of this truth. But the question I think before us is how then are we to square Jesus' teachings and ministry to sinners with what Psalm 1 seems to be saying? You shouldn't associate with people like this. And I think Old Testament scholar Gerald Wilson gives us some insight here. He reminds us that it's important to keep in mind that the psalmist is cautioning against adopting an attitude and lifestyle of the wicked, not some casual contact with them. So the point of Psalm 1 isn't to disassociate or not associate with the wicked, um, but it's not to adopt their lifestyle, their worldview. The warnings against choosing to follow the path of the wicked, standing with them and ultimately dwelling with them, that is becoming like them in their lifestyle and worldview, which is in opposition to God. 
You know, as Christians, we are ambassadors of Christ. And as such, we are tasked with bringing the good news to the lost. That is, bringing the good news to sinners, to the wicked, to mockers. We can, this can only happen if we're willing to engage with sinners while, while at the same time rejecting their lifestyle. It's being able to talk about your faith with others um, without adopting their lifestyle or worldview. Let's continue here. In verse 2, the psalmist turns his attention now to the righteous person. He's told us now not what, he's told us what not to do. Now he's going to give the positive what we should do. And he turns his attention to the righteous person who is blessed as he follows the path God's laid out for him. The blessed person is described as one who delights in the law of God and meditates on it day and night. These are the essential characteristics of the righteous person. And these characteristics are to permeate the life of the righteous. Verse 2 is actually the key verse for this psalm and many, for, many believe for the entire book of Psalms. It's in essence the map for staying on the path of righteousness. The psalmist tells us three things the righteous person does to remain on this path. He says he must delight in the law, she must meditate on it, and they are to do this day and night. Now, John Piper says this, the righteous and the wicked are separated by what they delight in, the revelation of God or the way of the world. So what does it then mean for us to delight in God's law? You know, to delight in something means to enjoy it, to desire it. When we delight in something, it's not just a cognitive experience, but also includes an emotional connection as well. For example, if you're married or you have a significant other, um, if you only have a cognitive relationship with that person, you, you say, oh, I delight in you, I, I think nicely of you, but there's no emotional affection, you probably won't be in that relationship for a long period of time. And the psalmist is saying the same thing here. When we delight in the law, it's not just our understanding of it, it impacts our heart, it impacts our emotions, it impacts our will. The blessed person has actual genuine joy and affection for the law of God. But how then still, how can we delight in God's law? That's what delight is. It involves our emotions, involves our intellect. But how can we delight in it? I heard one time, heard Tim Keller say this. I, and Martin Luther says the same thing. I don't delight in God's law. God's law condemns me. God's law shows me my sin. And it's, it does that for a purpose to lead us to Christ. But I think it's important to remember in this context, law in this context, and in biblical wisdom literature, which the Psalms are a part of, can have two meanings. It has a specific meaning and it has a general meaning. The specific meaning for Torah is simply law as translated here and means instruction. It could also mean the first five books of the Bible. So Torah is the Hebrew word for law, and it's also the name that the Jewish people give to the first five books of the Bible. All right? The first five books, the Moses books, are called the Torah. Um, but there's also a general meaning in the wisdom literature for, uh, for law, and it, which can, it can mean um, the entire word of God, all of God's word, not just the first five books of the Bible. So in this case, most commentators think the psalmist is saying to delight in the law means to delight in all of Scripture, which includes the Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms, all 
which were given for our instruction. It's important to note, and specifically, commentators think that the psalmist is saying, delight in the psalms. The psalms are the very word of God as well. So delight in them, delight in the word of God. So then again, we come back to this question. How are we to delight in the word of God? First, I would simply say this. Start with reading it. Start with listening to it. Start with hearing it. Start with meditating on the gospel of Jesus and what he's done for you or for us. There's great joy in the gospel as we see the love of God expressed to us in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Then secondly, I would encourage you to do this. Take time to read it and learn the promises of God that God makes to his people. The Bible is full. The word of God is full of promises that he makes to us as his children. There's promises that to never forsake us, promises to love us, promises to help us in times of trouble, promises of compassion and mercy when we fail, promises of forgiveness, and many, many, many more. Delighting in Scripture starts with knowing God through his revelation as you meditate on his character and promises. I think I've, I think I've heard Mark say something along these lines before, um, that if you, want to know, if you want to know the will of God, you want to know um, what is it? You want to know the will of God. Uh, you want to know God's way, His path. Then you have to do what? You have to know His word. You have to read His word. All right. If you want to know God's will, you want to know God's path. Then you need to know His word. All right. I think I've heard Mark say that. Anybody heard Mark say that here before? <laughs> Probably multiple times. Right. <laughs> so the question: How are you doing? Delighting in God's word. If you're like me, I've been a Christian for too long to recall. Thirty-two years. Um, I don't always delight in this word. I don't always read it like I ought to. I struggle. I have days when I, it's, it brings me great joy. There are other days when I'm in the depths of the valley, in the shadow of death, and I feel no joy. And yet God is still commanding us and telling us, come to his word. Come and learn to delight in it. Even when my heart isn't feeling that joy, isn't feeling like delighting in it. So I want to encourage you, wherever you are, in this process, wherever you are in this journey, on this path, learn to be delighting in God's word. For in his word is where we learn to know him and his ways. The psalmist continues in verse 2 by stating, the blessed person is one who not only delights in the word of God, but meditates on it day and night. To meditate then means not just to read God's word, but that we are in essence to soak our minds and hearts in it until it becomes part of who we are. We are to be hearing it, reading it, studying it, and speaking it to ourselves. Until its great truths, this is Tim Keller, until its great truths are pressed down into our hearts and our hearts catch fire with it. When you're not feeling the joy from the word, what are we to do? We're to read it. We're to read it. We're to pray. And God is going to bring that joy until the word becomes part of who we are. Until our worldview is conformed more and more into the image of that word. And we're confirmed more and more into the image of Christ. You know, many of us, I understand, lack this discipline of meditating in God's word. Reading the word is good, and please continue reading the word. But let's press on to getting to not just reading it, but to pushing further and deeper into understanding it and applying it to our lives. Because it's only then that God is going to take it and press it into our souls, into a heart that is going to become part of us. And then the psalmist tells us, right, the righteous person is not just to read the word or delight in the word. He's not just to meditate on it, 
he says to meditate on it day and evening, right? That's a Hebrew form of poetry that means you're to do this all the time. Not just twice a day, but all the time. We're to be delighting in the word, or in, the, in his word. We're to be meditating on it. We're to be thinking it. We're to be ruminating on it till it becomes part of who we are. So according to the psalmist, the key to not adopting the lifestyle of the wor- or the worldview of the wicked is to immerse yourself in the word of God. That is, the word of God changes us and molds us more and more into the image of Christ into the image of our Savior. It's the word that changes us through his spirit at work in us. The psalmist continues in verses 3 and 4 with a simile that shows the results of delighting and meditating on the word of God. So here the psalmist is saying, go ahead and do this, and this is what it brings out. This is what it's going to bring out. And he presents us with an image of a tree that God planted by water, which brings forth fruit and does not wither. The picture is of a tree that's grown strong, with deep roots sinking down and spreading out into the soil. This is true of the righteous as they are rooted in the word of God. That's the, what the, the connection the psalmist is making. If you are rooted in God's word, you're like a strong tree that's being nourished and being grown and being strengthened. Through the word, we're made strong and steady to face the challenges of life. This tree is strong, and this is important not to, not to miss this in the text. This tree is strong because it's been planted and tended by God himself. It's not strong because I read my Bible. It's not strong because I meditate on the Bible. It's strong. The righteous is made strong because God is planting them. He has planted us in Christ, and then he's giving us his word and his will to know um, that then strengthens us and helps us live according to the path he set before us. This reminds us the life of the righteous and the path he is on is a life that will also bear fruit, right? A healthy tree is a tree, or at least that's a fruit tree is a tree that bears fruit or bears continually green leaves. We will bear fruit in this life if we stay connected to our life source, to the living water, which is the word of God. And more specifically, we're told in the New Testament, the living water is Jesus himself. We are to be connected in the word, through the word, with Jesus, his teachings, his understanding with the entire word of God. And then on verse four, he continues with this simile regarding the wicked, who he says are like chaff that is blown away. They are compared to the part of the wheat plant that just is blown away in the winnowing process. And like the chaff, they are here, the wicked are here one second, and then they vanish, never to appear again in the assembly of the righteous. Now, what the psalmist is saying is that the wicked lack permanence. They lack value. They lack He's describing chaff as it's a part of the wheat that it's worthless. It has no value at all. They didn't even keep it for the use of animal food. It was just left to blown away. It's because the psalmist is is emphasizing that the wicked lack permanence. They're only here temporarily, and then they will depart into destruction. The psalm draws to a close in verse 6 by comparing the two outcomes of those who follow the path of life with those who follow the path of destruction. Those who are on the path of righteousness are are said to be known by the Lord. Being known by God means that he knows the righteous intimately and personally as his children. Not only does God, sorry, not only does God know the righteous, he knows the way of righteousness because he has walked that way before us already in Christ. He knows all the surprises and twists and turns that the path of the righteous will take because Jesus has already blazed a trail that is safe and secure for us to follow behind. 
So he already, we, we can be sure that on a, this path of life we're on, when we hit those obstacles, when we encounter those problems, that we can know that God already knows. He's already come before us. He's already overcome them. And he is going to help us overcome those same obstacles, those same struggles, those same temptations, those same failures, because he's going to be with us through his word and his spirit. The thing is about this passage, this can't be said of the wicked. They are neither known by God nor guided by him through his revelation. Their final outcome is a path that leads to their destruction. Now, this psalm has many parallels in the New Testament, and we could pull up a number of them. I'm, I'm going to save you and only pull up one today. Um, and I want to, we read it earlier in the earlier part of the service from Matthew 7, 13, and 14, but I'm going to read it again this time from the NIV version of Scripture. And, and this is what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 13, 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus is saying that there are only two paths in life. Just like the psalmist, there are two paths. One is the way of the cross that leads to life and glory. The other is the path and the wide gate is the way of destruction, which is the broad and popular way that leads to death. And then we're coming, as we come to the end, I think the question that we're asking is, how do we find this path of life that Jesus has blazed for us to enter into, or to enter onto this path? And Jesus gives us the answer to this question at the end of his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. And I'm going to read this for you again. This is Jesus speaking, Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose up, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose up, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. The wise man, in this parable, the wise man built a foundation on the solid rock. The song we read, the solid rock is Christ that enabled this house to stand in the midst of the storms of life. Not so the fool, not so the wicked. He built his foundation on sand. And when the storms of life rose up, his house fully collapsed. The only difference between the fool and the wise man, between the righteous and the wicked, is their attention and response to Jesus' words, that is, to the words of God, or to the word of God. Either we hear and respond to it, that is, we do what it says, or we don't pay attention to it, nor do we do what it says. This psalm comes to an end with a question that it doesn't ask. It's a rhetorical question, in a sense. And it's the, the, it ends with, out answering it, but what path are you on? Are you on the path of the wicked that leads to destruction? Or are you on the path of life that leads to abundant life, to fruitful life in Jesus. So if you find yourself today here on the path that's leading to destruction, let me encourage you to come, talk to me, talk to one of the elders here. Let us talk to you and share with you who Jesus is and how he has overcome death and sin for you and me. Let's pray.
Lord God, we are grateful and thankful that you do not leave us to ourselves, that you have already gone before us and blazed the path through this world in your son so that he has come, he has conquered death, he has conquered sin, he's conquered our sin, he's given us your word that we might know your will and your way for us. Lord, teach us to follow you, teach us to delight in your word, teach us to meditate on it, that our hearts would rejoice in knowing you and being known by you. We thank you in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.